healthy from the inside out. This is Valley Well Valle Salud, a health and wellness information program brought to you by ValleyWise Health and District Medical Group. Each week, we go in-depth with different healthcare experts on some of your top health questions, getting answers to help you live your best life. Hello and welcome to Valley Well Valle Salud. I'm your host, Lauren Vargas. Every year, millions of people get some type of surgery. In fact, the average American will undergo nine surgical procedures in their lifetime, according to the American College of Surgeons. So with that in mind, how do we prepare for surgery so we can begin the healing process as quickly as possible? Joining us to discuss is Dr. Ross Goldberg, president of the Arizona Medical Association and a district medical group surgeon at Valleywise Health. Dr. Goldberg, thank you so much for joining us again. Thanks for having me. So why did you decide to become a surgeon? So it's funny. Um, I knew medicine was kind of that pathway for a long time. Uh, a, a very close friend in college, his father was actually the head of liver transplant surgery at Emory. So as a junior, I went on my first donor run with him, like in the middle of the night. Uh, I was an EMT at that point already. Uh, and so he took me and at one in the morning, I went and saw him harvest a liver uh, to, to help people. And I took about five minutes being in the operating room and I knew I was locked in. Like surgery was going to be the, the the life for me. I changed a little bit in medical school until I did my first day of my surgery rotation and realized I was stupid. I should have just always, you know, realized I was going to be a surgeon. How have surgeries changed over time? I mean, I'm sure the technology has evolved. I'm a minimally invasive surgeon, right? So I can do these quote unquote big operations with smaller incisions, which can help accelerate healing. We can still do the open incisions, but even the technology and techniques to do big cases, open cases, we've evolved so much and continue to evolve. It's That's why it's also a lot of fun because it's always changing and learning and you develop new ways of approaching things and you can adapt and change and be creative with it. So surgery has come so far and we are still a long ways away of, of being completely done with all the changes. And when we say surgeries, it's such a wide range. It's such a generic topic, but what are some of the most common surgeries people might experience in their lifetime? Well, as a general surgeon, yeah, and exactly as you said, we uh, people get mad at us. We break people up into body parts, but that's kind of how surgery is broken up and the different specialties. As a general surgeon, gallbladders are a very common thing that we see, uh, people who have gallstones. And uh, the appendix is still a very frequently done operation here. Uh, hernias, groin hernias, abdominal wall hernias, those are the com more common ones. And then there's always the uh, the soft tissue masses, those lumps and bumps that you find, uh, getting them removed. Those are more of the common ones you'll see kind of when you come to see someone like me. So clearly you thrive on this sort of thing. And it sounds like almost like the gorier, the better. Whereas for me, I run away from all of that stuff. You're almost making me nauseous thinking about this, <laughs> talking about this. But I'm sure a lot of your patients get nervous when they're about to get ready for surgery. What are some of the fears and the common concerns that your patients have before they're getting ready to go under the knife? Well, I guess the one thing I can understand and I empathize with my patients because I've been a surgical patient. I've had a couple orthopedic surgeries done when I was in medical school. So I have been on the other side. Yes, I prefer being the one standing and operating, but I get it. It's for all of us, it's a lack of control. What it is, is it's this concept of that you usually control your life and then all of a sudden you're not in control, you're asleep, someone's doing something to you. So it's scary. Now we have medication to take the edge off. The anesthesiologist will give you something to help you relax. But I think it's the understanding of being comfortable with your surgeon. I've always told my patients, if you're not in the right mind frame, uh, frame of mind to get in there, we shouldn't be doing the case. I need you kind of 
ready to go, understanding, not happy with it, but understanding and kind of accepting of what's going to happen. So if you need more time to make a decision, I will never force a patient to go to the operating room who doesn't want to. So I think it's that kind of mental understanding. It's the, I don't want to do it, but I have to do it kind of understanding. And once they're comfortable with that, that's, I think, helps kind of alleviate the fears. And then we give you the medication, which takes away all the fears because, you know, you're fully relaxed at that point. Do people get really worried about waking up during surgery? I've been asked that a few times. It is extremely rare. Um, I have patients who have told me stories. Uh, there is some stuff in the literature, though it's extremely rare. Because a lot of the stuff we do when we put you under our general anesthetic, kind of completely asleep with the breathing tube, is we also paralyze you. Because we need to, you know, when I do minimally invasive surgery, I, I blow up the belly. Like, so I can see, I need to be able to see what I'm doing. So use gas to blow things up. And so you have to be paralyzed. So there's this fear that you're going to wake up before the paralytics wear off. I have never seen that personally. It is very rare. Can it happen? There's a very, very small percentage of that happening. It's not as frequent as you think. Uh, what usually happens, people ask when we put them uh, to sleep with anesthesia, they wake up and ask, when are we starting? We've already finished the case because you have no idea what's going on. It's like going to sleep and you wake up and you just, for you, it's, you know, snap of the fingers. For us, it could have been hours. And so it's an interesting perspective. People, yeah, they, they worry about that, but I have not had someone wake up. And the way the anesthetics work, if you were to start coming out of stuff, the conscious part of it where you're aware is like one of the last things to come back. So it would be very, you have to get all the way there before you realize what's going on. So there's a lot of layers to protect the patient so that it doesn't happen. I'm sure there's nothing to worry about, but I still have sweaty palms just thinking about it. I get it. It's again, it's that lack of control, right? You are trusting other people and you're completely vulnerable. So I get it. It's, it's an understandably not pleasant position to be in. We're talking about how to prepare for surgery with Dr. Ross Goldberg, a district medical group physician at Valleywise Health and president of the Arizona Medical Association. You can make an appointment at Valleywise Health by calling 833-855-9973 Monday through Friday from 7.30 a.m. to 5 p.m. or by visiting valleywisehealth.org. So like we said, there's so many different types of operations and surgeries, but a lot of these are outpatient now, right? And what's the difference between an outpatient and an inpatient procedure? Yeah, sometimes you can have surgeries, like I mentioned, the gallbladders, the hernias, where you come in the same day and go home the same day. Uh, some require you to stay in the hospital for a period of time, but be it a day, a couple days, a week or longer, depending on what you need to get done and the extent of the operation. So an outpatient is uh, something you may go to the hospital for or those ambulatory surgery centers, those same-day surgeries. It's a – and I hate to use the word minor, but it is a – it's a, an operation that we know people can tolerate by going home the same day. They heal better at home. So the outpatient elective gallbladder that we talked about, that is usually a go-home same-day operation. Uh, I do some of the bigger stuff like a pancreatic resection. You're going to be staying in the hospital for a little bit about that. That's a more extensive operation. It's going to take longer, going to be a longer recovery period. And there's certain things we have to watch out for postoperatively to make sure you're doing okay. Gallbladders, for the most part, do okay at home. If there's issues, they let us know. So if you're told you're getting outpatient surgery, it means you get to go home the same day. Your family may not like it because you're going to be groggy from the anesthesia and may say things that, you know, you don't remember. Uh, but it's so you can heal at home. Is that becoming more of a trend um, as we kind of modernize in our technology and our medicine that 
doctors are encouraging people to recover at home versus in the hospital? We have found people do better at home than in the hospital for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, a running joke is they'll wake you up at 2 a.m. to give you a sleeping pill. Is, you know, we're constantly checking on you in the hospital for good reason, checking your vital signs, checking how you're doing. At home, you're a little more relaxed in a, in a friendlier environment, in a more comfortable environment. So if we can move you to an outpatient setting or get you home as soon as possible to heal, you'll do better usually, just from mentally, physically. Because also think about it, at home, it's unlikely you're going to be weighted on hand and foot like you kind of are in the hospital, right? There's an issue, hit the call button, the nurses come, we have physical therapy come work with you, get you ready to go home. But then when you're home, the expectation is you're somewhat independent, even after having surgery. So we are pushing to try to get more and more people home quickly just because they will do better. And it's a less of a cost on them too. And for the system, if you don't need to heal in the hospital, we always, we were a lot more conservative, I would say decades ago about how long you need to stay in the hospital. We have learned over time, people do just as well, if not better, if they're home, once we hit certain thresholds. And that's why there's a big push to have people uh, heal at home, they do better. That makes a lot of sense. So let's walk people through how to actually prepare uh, for surgery. Um, what are some tips and things that people can do to make sure their procedure is successful as possible? Well, first, make sure you know and you like your surgeon. I, it's interesting. People come sometimes to see us and they think they're getting surgery that day. Well, unless it's an emergency, the first time is just a meet and greet. You know, we want to get to know each other, understand what the problem is and give us a chance to explain and let someone think about what they want to do and if they want to have surgery. Uh, they'll get a whole bunch of instructions that will repeat multiple times on what they need to do. Usually it involves some sort of fasting for a period of time with food and drink, depending on what you're getting done. Uh, you know, you, we have nurses call you beforehand to make sure that you're ready for your operating room day, depending on what medications you take, when and when not to take them. Then the day of the operation, you're going to come in at least a couple hours early. They always call and tell you when, if you're a scheduled case, when to come in, because there's some things you need to do. Put the IV in, you have to get changed into those lovely hospital gowns that everyone loves, you know, because there's always a little delay to get everything set up. And it's a little scary. You're sitting there in the in the holding area before the operating room. You're You've got basically a gown on and a covers and you're sitting and waiting until someone comes and lets you know what's going on. So it's, it's to realize that it, everyone's going through the same thing, that we are going to take good care of you. Um, and then you go through the, the operation. You're brought back. If Depending on the anesthetic, they, they initiate that. You wake up. We're done. You're in the recovery room. If it's an outpatient procedure, we make sure you can do certain things like get up, move around, go to the bathroom. Can you tolerate you know, something to eat and drink? Uh, and then we send you home and you go home and heal. And the thing I think from all of that people need to realize is there's going to be discomfort and pain after surgery. Uh, it's not going to be zero. I joke with people and say, I cause pain for a living. That's kind of part of what I do. It's you make an incision somewhere, it's going to hurt. So our job is to control the pain and make it tolerable. I can't make it zero, but that's a part of it. And we want people to move and start healing with that pain, if that makes sense. The way I equate it is, imagine you went to the gym and worked out a whole bunch and the next day you're really, really sore. It's going to kind of feel like that, that your whole body is one big stiff muscle and we need to kind of work and loosen it up, but it's okay. That's normal. And I think when you realize that, how to prepare, preparing more is going to be a mental thing. And then the healing is the physical and the mental combined. 
So when you talk about that first meet and greet with your surgeon where you're not going into surgery yet, what are some good questions that patients should ask their surgeon? Is it okay to ask for their credentials and their history? Oh, no, I've been asked, yeah, how long have I been doing this? How long have I been here? Fortunately, I guess I haven't started to turn gray yet. So I get questions sometimes because I see the darker hair and they wonder, well, are you just out of training? Have you been doing this for a while? Um, and I thank them for the compliment, first of all. But obviously, I I want them to feel comfortable. So if you're not sure about your surgeon, and a lot of people look us up online now, there are different ways to do that. Some of the sites are not as accurate, but ask questions. If you want to know how many of these have you done or how often do you do the surgery or have you done it before, um, what does it entail? Also, what I remind patients is usually when we start talking about an operation at the clinic visit, your brain shuts off at some point because it's a lot of information. So you're hearing it, but it's not processing. So I tell people, no matter what I tell them the day of the day of the clinic visit, we're going to go over it again the day of surgery. And in the meanwhile, if they have any questions, write them down. That way, the day of surgery comes, they can call, they can speak to me. We can go through all those questions that they don't remember or they may want to, they forgot to ask. So you don't have to do everything on your first visit. You can you have follow-up questions. You can call the office. Ask whatever you makes you feel comfortable. If you're not sure what it is, you need a better explanation, you want to a second opinion, you know, whatever you want to feel comfortable, you should do that. You should never go to an operating room uncomfortable if you can help it, especially for an elective case that is a scheduled planned case, meaning you have time to set it up. So you should always have that comfort level before you go in the room. Absolutely. You said people should know their surgeon and like their surgeon. So if you're not getting that good, you know, rapport, um, don't be shy to get a second opinion, right? Look, it's, it's, you've got to trust me, you know, I, I am taking sharp objects to you while you were asleep and, and I'm not protected. And my job is to protect you. So I would hope you would feel comfortable with me doing that. If you do not trust your surgeon, no, you should find another surgeon because you need to have that trust because it is a two way street. We'll do our part, but the expectations are patients do their parts as well. You're not a passenger in this. You're a participant. So we need everyone to do their part in this. And if there's not a good working relationship, it doesn't go well. Dr. Ross Goldberg with District Medical Group answering your top questions on how to prepare for surgery. You can make an appointment at ValleyWise Health with a District Medical Group provider by calling 833-855-9973 or by visiting valleywisehealth.org. So let's talk a little bit about how anesthesia works. First of all, are there different options and ways to do that and how does that work? Well, the running joke with the surgeon is anesthesia works when I yell at the anesthesiologist, but of course we work in as partnerships with them. Uh, They do tremendous amount of work. They are really making sure everything goes well so I can do my job. There are different types of anesthesia. There is what we call local, which is if you get an injection of like lidocaine or something to numb up an area or a block where you can knock out a nerve and have a segment kind of, it's like if you fell asleep on your hand and knocked out the feeling in your hand, we can actually individually knock out some nerves doing that. So there's regional blocks. There's something called spinal, which what it sounds like, yes, you're injecting in the spinal cord. That's something I had actually for my surgeries. So it can make you numb for parts of your body, like from the waist down. You hear that a lot with epidurals, things like that. And then there's the the monitored anesthesia where there's the uh, the ability where you don't need a breathing tube necessarily, but you're kind of asleep. You, everyone's heard of the drug propofol. Uh, unfortunately for a variety of reasons, that's one of the drugs they use to induce you to kind of be asleep 
and to not remember what's going on. Depending on the type of anesthetic they do, sometimes you could do it with you sleeping like snoring, or they need to put a tube in to protect the airway because they're completely relaxing you, paralyzing you. That's a general anesthetic. Now, again, for someone who does big surgeries, that's a common one I use because I need the patient completely asleep and relaxed. And so I can do what I need to do when they're not, their body's not fighting me because the body has involuntary actions too that will fight against certain things. So you, a general is a really kind of completely asleep, paralyzed, and that's usually the most extreme we go. Uh, and so you have run that gambit depending on what you're doing. You can do a combination of them. Uh, depending on what you're working on. What are some of the potential side effects of anesthesia? Does it work on everybody or are there some people who don't react well to it? There's a range. Uh, there, are some, uh, there are some extreme reactions in a very select rare group. There's actually a terminology for that and that's important history if you have that history. Uh, it's rare, but to let people know if you react to anesthesia, it could be as mild as things as nausea or an allergic reaction or one drug just doesn't, you don't do well with to more serious complications. And the anesthesiologist, the day of surgery, goes over all of that because just like I need to get consent to do my part, they need consent for their part. And depending on what they're using, you could have a reaction. The majority of people do fine for the most part. I want to bring in Chencho Flores, our audio producer now. He has some questions for you. Uh, I've never had a major surgery myself, but people always say when you're having surgery, say on your arm, shoulder, get a Sharpie and write on the other one, say not this arm or not this leg or not this shoulder. Is that something people need to do to prepare or, I mean, where does this even come from? So there has been very rare instances, unfortunately, where the wrong site has been operated on, uh, wrong side, wrong area. So we have protocols here that prevent that from happening. First of all, so let's say I'm, work, I'm working on your right arm. I have to mark that arm in the holding area while you're awake. You know, you're going to get asked like 17 times what side we're working on. You're going to get kind of annoyed by it because every person you meet is going to ask you what side are we operating on. Then as my job as the operating surgeon, I have to mark that site. So you don't need a Sharpie. We have stuff that washes off. But I will have to sign the area with like initials or some way to acknowledge this is the site I'm operating on. We also make sure that consent have the correct site on it and I'm documenting the right site. Then when we go to the operating room, we do what's called a timeout. So that's when you're asleep usually. That's a way to verify that everyone in the room agrees with everything we're going to do. I usually say your name, uh, what procedure we're doing, what side are we doing if there's a side, um, and then other things like do we have medications and everything sterile, and we go through the whole list. So we have significant number of checkboxes to prevent the wrong side surgery being done. Does it still happen? Very, very rarely. I'm not aware of one here actually in a long time, but we put a lot of safety precautions in place for that very reason. So these protocols are standard, like you have to do it. And if things, something doesn't match, you have to fix that problem because uh, otherwise you can't move forward with your operation. But you don't need to use a Sharpie to write anything. We'll take care of it. Uh, you know, one of our, our, our great pop culture moments is when Kramer drops the junior mint. Not, not that people are eating junior mints in the operating room, but do things get left behind in people, I know it's got to be a rare thing too, but does that happen or is that just another kind of? Uh... Not junior mints. I, I'm a fan of junior mints, but I don't have them in the operating room. Yeah, that's not a good idea. Uh, there are rare times when you, you leave something behind by accident. It could be an instrument. It could be with a gauze, could be a needle from a suture. It is a rare event. We want it to be a never event. It's an almost never event, but I can never, I can't say it's hundred percent doesn't happen. It is extremely rare. And again, we do things called counts. 
So when you start a case, you're a circulator nurse and the nurse who scrubbed in or the scrub tech, they count all the instruments and everything they have. They track everything we open, gauze, needles. They write it all down. They have it all listed. If they switch because, you know, their shift change, they recount. And at the end of the case, they count again to make sure the count's right. Um, if there's, if it's off or if you know you're missing something, then we have to investigate because you can't leave the operating room if you're aware of it. There are the rare times when you didn't realize you leave something behind and you find out later on, we have to go back and get it. But I will tell you that is a very, very rare thing that occurs. When you look at the volume of cases that we do here, it is, we're talking single digits. So the percentage is very, very low. So let's talk about COVID-19 for a second, because it's pretty much changed the way we do everything. And I'm sure surgery is no exception. In fact, I think I remember hearing that a lot of these surgeries were canceled for a long time back in the early days. So how has COVID ultimately changed the way you operate? Well, the big thing right now still, um, from which is still with the executive order from the governor, is that we are still required to preoperatively test everyone for elective surgery. So if you're going to get that elective gallbladder, you're going to get a COVID test a couple days beforehand. You're going to come in beforehand. We're going to swab your nose, not the not that brain biopsy one anymore. They just do the swab. But then you have to go home and isolate for a couple of days until we get the test results, and then you can come to the operating room. I have canceled cases because patients have turned up COVID positive when they were asymptomatic and we had to delay the case for a couple of weeks. That's the biggest change right now is that we really want to make sure we have, we check that box to make sure people are okay. As we are learning more, we're going to be changing our protocols, protection about, you know, making sure the surgical smoke is taken care of, that you're wearing the right mask, that everyone's covered. It's the same things we do in the operating room. That's the kind of funny thing is we're always in masks. We're always kind of wearing these, have these precautions in place. So in the operating itself, room itself has not changed much. Maybe certain safety protocols have. It's more of getting you to the operating room, which has been the biggest change so far. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, I have one more question, and I don't know if you can answer this completely, but you know, surgery tends to be one of the most expensive medical procedures you can get. And so a lot of people get a huge medical bill at the end. How can you avoid getting some surprise um, items on your medical bill? Yeah, that's that is a big topic. Actually, I, I've I have dealt with that before in my role through the Arizona Medical Association and through national organizations, and it's a hotly discussed topic right now in Congress. And we actually have a law here in Arizona to deal with that term surprise billing. I guess also there's some confusion of what does that mean. So what surprise billing is, is that if in and again I use the term loosely, it's when you go somewhere that you think is in your network. But say the anesthesiologist is not in your network or the radiologist is not in your network or the pathologist is not in your network. So you go get your emergency, say, surgery done. So you're getting your appendix out. But then you're getting a bill from someone who, A, you haven't met. And you're like, why am I getting this massive bill? Because they were not in your network. We don't want patients to be in the middle of this. And there's a lot of steps that have been done to take the patient out. That's an issue between the, the people doing the job and the people paying for it, if you will, between the insurance companies. The patient shouldn't be in the middle. If they get a bill, the first thing they should do is call either the, the physician or the hospital and ask, what is this? Because sometimes they'll get a bill and they'll be told not to pay attention to it, but we all get nervous when we get a bill. So we want to make sure there's nothing that we owe. But the surprise billing is kind of dealing with that issue. We are working on legislation on the federal level to address this. 
in Arizona, there is something between, we've taken the patient out of it after they've paid their co-pays. And then it really becomes an issue between the, the two bodies of the payer and the recipient of the payment and how they deal with that. So if you get a big bill, which we hope you don't get, which you usually shouldn't get if you're doing, if you're within your network, call your hospital, call your insurance company and try to get information before you freak out when you see the bill. Because sometimes we get things in the mail that will say on there, you don't have to worry about this. This is for your information. I hate getting those, having to receive them because you don't see the ignore part. All you see is the dollar sign and be like, what is going on? But just always make sure, because a lot of the time you're not going to be caught in the middle and there's actually legal protection in there now, at least in Arizona, to pull the patient out of it. That's for patients who have insurance and are going somewhere that they think are a network, but parts of the people working there are not. Dr. Ross Goldberg, president of the Arizona Medical Association and a district medical group surgeon at Valleywise Health. A lot of information covered today. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed listening to Valley Well Via Salute, a health and wellness information program brought to you by Valleywise Health and District Medical Group. If you're looking for more information about what you've heard today, visit us online at valleywisehealth.org slash bewell. There you'll find blogs and videos from our healthcare providers, and you can even book an appointment at a Valleywise Community Health Center near you. That's valleywisehealth.org slash bewell. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll tune in again soon.